Listener Production. Now this week, we're talking toxicology, the science of drugs and poisons. Dr. Dimitri Gerostomolos is the head of forensic science and the chief toxicologist at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. In a nutshell, a toxicologist is analysing parts of the body and deciphering whether drugs are in someone's system, trying to figure out what drugs they are, when they enter the body, and what effect they had on the body. If we assume that hair grows at a centimetre per month, let's say you've got nice long hair of 20 centimetres, there's 20 months of a window that we can go back in time and have a look at potentially what drugs you had been exposed to or consumed. This work is crucial to so many aspects of an investigation, whether it's drink driving, a homicide, a sexual assault or a suicide. Dimitri, welcome to Crime Insiders Forensics and thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, nice to be here. We often hear about toxicology reports coming when we hear about famous people dying of, we were just saying, cardiac arrests. Cardiac arrest is not a cause of death. Everybody has a cardiac arrest eventually and that's how the body stops, but it's not the cause of death. But it's interesting to me that so many celebrity deaths, you hear about them or crimes and they're awaiting toxicology reports. And then the toxicology seems to be forgotten in the aftermath. So could you just give us a top line explanation of what it means to be a practicing toxicologist and how your role fits into the criminal justice system? Sure. Um, So a forensic toxicologist is someone who essentially assesses or analyzes samples, biological samples. They can be collected either at post-mortem or when they're collected in hospital, for example, and they're analyzed for drugs and poisons. And they are analyzed specifically for those compounds using fancy techniques such as liquid chromatography with mass spectrometry. So these are specific techniques that um, will identify a particular drug and then potentially tell us how much of the drug was also in in the sample that is being analysed. So it involves the practice of analysing biological samples for the determination of drugs, essentially. And that happens fairly routinely every day in most forensic organisations. And here at the VIFM, we do a few hundred cases, a few hundred coronial cases per week uh, in terms of, not per week, per month, I should say, um, in terms of the number of cases, but also the, the sheer volume of drugs that need to be screened for. So we look for prescription drugs, illicit drugs, poisons that can be used to either, you know, cause someone's harm or people who deliberately self-ingest these these drugs as a mode of, you know, ending their own life. So we're challenged in terms of the the number of drugs, uh, but also the volume of cases that, that we see at the Institute. So that's what a forensic toxicologist does per se. But for me, I've moved past that role a little bit and now involved in the interpretation of, of, of drug results in post-mortem reports or in injury reports or drivers who um, are injured or either kill someone on the road and then have a certain drug or drugs in their system and then come to a conclusion about how those drugs have contributed to the accident or how they've caused the accident or how they've caused the death. There's got to be a lot of variables in that too when you're looking at a specific drug in, say, a 45-kilogram woman is going to be differently metabolised from a 140-kilo man. So it's not just a matter of finding that drug or that 
prescription or that illegal illicit drug, recreational drug, is it? No, that's correct. So a concentration of a drug on its own is really difficult to interpret without other contextual information. So you're quite right. Is that person a regular user of the drug? What was the dose of the drug? How was that drug administered? Are there other drugs that uh, can potentially affect the metabolism of a particular drug? How big is that person? These are all factors that are considered. And in a post-mortem setting, how long have they been dead for? Um, what changes have occurred to the body after death that may impact the concentrations of drugs? Because generally, after someone dies, drug concentrations do change. They tend to go up. They tend to increase in concentration because you get a release of tissue, uh, drugs that are retained in tissues back into the bloodstream. And we know that happens quite readily for some drugs. And we also know that they are redistributed over time. So the the longer the the interval from death to autopsy or death to sampling, the more chance that there is a change in that concentration. And that has impacts for how do you then interpret a concentration that you find post-mortem. That's incredibly interesting. So because often, well, I'm getting so excited, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, can we go back to, at a crime scene, for example, who is taking the samples? Where are they coming from? And how are they delivered to the labs and what's the process and why does it take so long to get a report back? Good question. So no one that I know who's a forensic toxicologist will sample blood at the scene. No one goes to a crime scene and says, oh, we'll take some samples there for toxicology. That just doesn't happen. So that might be a CSI thing, I don't know, but generally a person will be admitted to the institute or to a mortuary where samples will be taken. Now, we have a process at the Institute where once someone arrives at the Institute, a blood sample is taken fairly quickly. And we do that because we want to minimise some of the changes that may occur whilst that person is sitting in the mortuary awaiting a process or a procedure, uh, which may take a few days by the time a pathologist then sees that person. Um, so we take a sample upon admission, that sample is sent to the laboratory, and we do a a fairly rapid analysis of hundreds of drugs, and then we provide that, that those results back to the pathologist and the coroner for discussion about, you know, whether a case progresses to autopsy or doesn't have an autopsy or whatever the steps may be. But we don't take samples at a crime scene. That's, that's just a no-no. We just don't do that. And um, there might be some other crime scene evidence that is collected, absolutely, but not for toxicology. So these are usually sampled in a mortuary or sampled in a hospital. These samples are delivered. We tend to freeze them and then batch analyse them together. So we get, you know, we try and maximise our outputs, if you like. Um, and they're, so when you have a volume of blood, a mill of blood, that's then concentrated uh, using some, um, some fancy techniques. We add a solvent to try and extract the drugs from the, the matrix itself. Uh, that's, that's part of the challenge. And so once we've extracted those drugs, we concentrate them, uh, we essentially add a bit more liquid to the concentrated mixture and then inject that on one of our fancy chromatographic systems. And what the chromatographic system does is it separates the drugs based on their physiochemical properties, uh, the weight and size of the drug, if you like, and then we compare that to a reference standard and then we can say, hey, presto, there's some morphine in this person or there is some methylamphetamine in this person or there's some alcohol and all of those tests may need different types of equipment so when michael jackson dies and the laboratory says oh it'll be 
eight to 10 weeks before we can get a report back to you. That's a terrible American accent. But I know the toxicologist <laughs> in California who did the analysis. But there are some tests that take time. And that's generally because not all drugs are easily measurable. So volatile substances like um, propane or, um, or butane or some of the gases, they're very volatile, very difficult to detect at post-mortem. And then there are drugs that are in very small concentrations that also challenge us to be able to determine that in a in a in a sample. So there are there are some 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 issues for us, but that's part of being a forensic toxicologist. Could you talk us through one of your most remembered criminal cases, whether it was your first one or one that just stands out for a particular reason of the way it affected you and what your role was in that criminal case, whether it was in court. Um, would you share that with us? Yes, sure. So I've got there's probably a few cases. One um, briefly was um, a young Italian boy who was, um, who was the subject of a single punch fatality down in Mornington. And um, he um, was out at night and unfortunately got hit um, from behind and he essentially hit the ground, um, had a a subdural hemorrhage, and he died. And I gave evidence in the in the in the court case, um, and I met his mum, and that was a really moving experience for me because you know he's a young fellow, uh, twenty one years old, I think he was, and you know he was the subject of a, an attack. And at the time, she asked me how common was this, and I said, well, I, I don't really know. And we did some work, and we actually found that there were hundreds of single punch fatalities that occurred you know, across Australia. And we've done some research in this area and we've shown that, that drugs do play a role in these in these, in these these fatalities, usually alcohol, but there are other illicit drugs involved. For the victim or the perpetrator? For the victim. The perpetrators, right. sometimes they do have drugs on board, but we don't test the perpetrators. It's very rarely that we get a sample from the perpetrators. Um, so they're not routinely collected, uh, but we do get them in the victims, for example, in, in, every, in every victim who dies as a result of violent... Uh, of a violent exchange, we do have samples and we analyse those samples. So there's a high proportion of victims who have methamphetamine on board as a result of violent homicide, and that's 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 an interesting um, that's an interesting occurrence. What does that mean? Does that mean that that predisposes them to sort of behaviour that might be out of the normal? I don't know, uh, but it's the first question I get when I go to court is when someone has methamphetamine in the system, does that drug make them aggressive? Well, it can do, but you know, there there are other other symptoms that occur with taking, for example, a stimulant drug. So, the, basically, the defence are asking if the the victim contributed to their own death. Yes, yes, that's often a, a question that we get, um, particularly when there are stimulants in in a in a deceased person. So that was one one example. The other example was um, a fellow who was uh, disabled, who went to a football game with his two carers. Uh, one of the carers was a a coach of a football team, and the disabled man in the wheelchair, he was uh, he was a bit thirsty, went into the club rooms, and he had a drink of what he thought was water, but it was actually liniment oil, and it was methyl salicylate, which is a, quite a nasty poison. It's sort of the rubbing or liniment oil, similar to deep heat when you put that on muscles to try and warm them up, uh, and he drank the contents of that and subsequently died. And that to us came in as an accident, that case. It was described as an accident, came in as an accident. We analysed the samples from the deceased person. We found a whole lot of methyl salicylate, which was the cause of death. So there are a couple of cases. I've got heaps of cases, Catherine, but um, 
Um, I might save that for a book. Who knows? <laughs> or a part two. Or a part two. It's amazing to me how long poisoning has been around and used in ancient Roman times. In the 1600s, there was a woman who was actually accused of facilitating the murders of 600 husbands. And this was in Italy. And she actually it's thought to have got it from her mother who may have killed her father. And she hung around apothecaries and the pharmacists of the time and used belladonna and arsenic and turned it into a makeup. She was thought to have facilitated 600 deaths. And some of the most prominent true crime cases that we see that are ad nauseum on television and recycled documentaries are often exhuming bodies and finding that, you know, the Black Widow killed three men and they only find out that it was thallium poisoning or antifreeze or something that links these these number of deaths. So it's initially thought that people can get away with it quite easily. But from what I'm reading, it's very difficult to get away with poisoning someone today. Would you agree with that? Yes, I, I agree with that. Uh, there are some compounds that degrade over time and largely remain undetectable. I'm not going to tell you what they are. Um, there are there are poisons that will persist in the body long after someone has died, and they are detectable years later. Uh, now, going back to the lady in the 1600s, um, atropine would be a fairly rapid poison, but thallium and um, arsenic, I think you mentioned, or sorry, lead and arsenic, they're poisons that take a long time to actually cause someone some harm. Um, so most poisoners will use a drug that has an acute effect rather than a long-term effect. But then again, depends on your mode of poisoning. So if you want to stay the course and poison someone slowly over time, that's possible. But then there are others who use you know, short-acting drugs that potentially can cause someone's harm using drugs like Perhaps I won't give away the, no, no, no. the drugs. <laughs> we're, not, we're, just, we're not doing a how-to. Yes, not a how-to. But there are there are there are substances that you can detect um, after death, and the techniques are better than ever. So when Lance Armstrong said, "I've done five hundred drug tests and I've never tested positive," well, guess what? He wouldn't get away with that today because the techniques are so advanced that. Um, small amounts of drugs can now be picked up to the billionth or trillionth of a part in a particular sample, which makes it really difficult to say that you haven't taken or haven't been administered a particular substance. And that's, and I think that's resulted in a lot less doping cases than, than ever before. You probably don't hear about as much doping as what you would have heard 10, 15 years ago. And I know that in the 90s, because I had an interest in cycling, there were lots of cyclists who were using EPO, for example, um, as a growth hormone to improve their performance. And that was largely undetectable because of the techniques that they were using. So things have improved significantly. How did he get away with it for so long in terms of the technology back then versus now? What's changed? So 20, 25 years ago, the level of analytical technology was not as good as what it is now. So we have essentially high-resolution mass spectrometers that can actually weigh drugs to a, the fifth decimal place of its mass, which is something that was not possible 20 wow. years ago. Um, and these are more routine instruments that are used and therefore lot more likely to pick up these unknown unknowns, as Donald 
Rumsfeld once coined them. There are known knowns and unknown knowns or whatever the, the phrase was, but we now know that if we see a, a, a peak in a chromatogram, so a large peak, what is that peak? And we can drill down to identify that based on its particular mass and then reduce or identify the number of compounds that it potentially may be. One of the things that I'm particularly interested in is drug-facilitated crime, which also seems to be on the rise. And by that, we're talking about um, drug-facilitated sexual assault as well. Are criminals getting smarter or are they just using the same things and taking more risks? What do you think is happening there? Because there seem to be an awful lot of young people who've been to clubs and pubs and they don't necessarily report to the police, but they report to each other or others have seen them or saved them from having, say, one minimal drink and then the next thing is they're legless, they can't walk or they're vomiting and they can't remember what's happened that night. And there does seem to be a significant prevalence of drug-facilitated crime amongst young people. Have you seen a rise or do they not reach criminal cases? We've, we've not seen a significant increase in the number of cases reported to us. That's not to say that cases of drink spiking or drug-facilitated crime don't occur. The range of drugs is probably wider than ever nowadays in terms of sedative drugs or drugs that can cause someone to feel drowsy, perhaps leading to unconsciousness, perhaps leading to a situation where they're put at some some risk. There are drugs, for example, that are short-acting that people do administer in, in open drinks and they can be in liquid form. They are largely tasteless or colourless um, and they can be disguised in drinks. So that makes it easy to spike someone's drink and before you know it, 20, 30 minutes later, they potentially might be unconscious, um, even though they've only had one, one mm. drink. Now, we do know that drink spiking does occur. However, we don't see those cases as a forensic organisation. There usually has to be police involvement for those samples to actually come to us, and then we do a fairly comprehensive analysis of those samples. Now, there are drugs, for example, that disappear or are eliminated by the body over the course of time. So if someone has a, an episode on a Friday night, doesn't see a doctor till Monday, for example, maybe the drug has been cleared from their body by the time that a sample is taken. That's a problem. So that means that any potential drug evidence has is not very useful in the context of that case. However, we do know that when someone consumes a drug or takes a drug, it has the potential to find its way into hair. And hair grows at a particular point in time, um, has a fairly consistent growth rate for most people who you know have, have normal hair. And if a victim can come back four to six weeks later, there's the potential of sampling a piece of hair, and a piece of hair meaning a hundred strands of hair, for example, it's not just one strand as you see in CSI or other TV shows. We need, you know, a significant volume of, of hair strands to actually analyse for drugs of interest. And we do that. We do that for drink spike or not drink spiking, but drug facilitated crime cases. But we also do that in many of our coronial investigations. And I'll give you an example. We have unfortunately a number of children that are reported to the coroner every year. And as part of that process, we analyse their hair particularly when there's a positive drug finding. And sometimes we do find drugs in, in a child's hair. That may mean that they're exposed to drugs in the home. It may mean that the mother was using drugs in utero. It may mean that um, the child has been exposed to, I don't know, 
drugs in the, in the home, whether that be smoking or as tablets or powders, whatever it might be. And that means that if there are other children in the family, they'll also be tested. Um, so that's, that's, that's a positive outcome from a, a really awful case. Because they'll be at risk, obviously. Absolutely. So when drugs are used in the home and there are young children in the home, that's obviously a risk for their well-being and development. Um, so we do have other avenues where we can we can determine drugs and, uh, and other substances in different samples, but it does really depend on when someone presents after a, a drug-facilitated episode uh, for a clinician to take a sample and then that sample be sent to the institute for analysis. Drink spiking is a, is a significant issue, um, but I'm not quite sure that there's the there are the resources to be able to to analyse every single case of drink spiking. Um, certainly, that's a big job for for our police force, and also a big job for us to to analyse every sample. Because then there's an investigative component that needs to occur. Finding a drug in a particular sample, well, that might be some evidence, but then there's there's also the the other evidence that needs to support uh, a possible prosecution or a criminal defence. Does the metabolism in the hair concentration alter over time? The concentration will vary depending on the sampling of the hair. So um, what is important in the analysis of hair is that sometimes it's important to detect metabolites, which indicates consumption of the drug. But there are drugs, for example, that break down normally or as a part of their breakdown uh, process that lead to the presence of a drug and metabolite. And that complicates the picture. Well, is it consumption or is it contamination? Cocaine is a good example. Cocaine will spontaneously metabolise to its primary metabolic product, benzlecanine. Now, we know that when you consume the drug, that will also be as part of the, the, the process of elimination and will find its way into hair. So concentrations do vary in hair. What you can't say from a concentration is hair is how much of the drug they had actually taken. You can't relate these back to dose. That's something we do know. But it can be an all or nothing. It means there was. There was, or it's at a level that we can't detect. So an acute administration or a single administration of a drug in, um, to someone doesn't always find its way into the hair. That's another, that's another consideration. But once you have the hair, it's not going to change. No. Once it's in the hair, it's in the hair. You can try and wash it out. You can use your favourite shampoo. You can try and peroxide your hair. You can try and colour your hair. You can do whatever you like, perm your hair if, you've, if you're able to. The drug will still be in there. It might be there in lesser concentration, but it will still be there. What is the best type of hair to test that's on the human body? Undoubtedly head hair. It grows at the most consistent rate from the back of the head and it's about a centimetre per month. Back of the head is where we typically take a uh, sample of hair from. We usually take a lock of sample, a pencil thickness of, of, of hair, which is about 100 strands or 100 milligrams of hair, and we analyse that and that can be done as a whole hair or it can be analysed segmentally. So segmentally meaning that um, if we assume that hair grows at a centimetre per month, so for every centimetre of hair, let's say you've got nice long hair of 20 centimetres, there's 20 months of a window that we can go back in time and have a look at potentially what drugs you had been uh, exposed to or consumed. So that's, that's, that's a useful tool in our, in our chest. But you can't narrow it down from that 20 months if you've got a long piece of hair or do you segment we segment. We um, don't normally analyse the whole hair unless all you've got to submit is a centimetre of hair or two centimetres of hair. And beards? Beards, yes. So hair hair does grow at a slower rate on, on, on the face, but we have 
there are plenty of documented examples where you can measure um, drugs in hair and also alcohol markers in hair. So one thing you might not be aware of is that in places like Sweden, Germany and Switzerland, they have uh, limits for the amount of ethanol you can have in your hair sample. So these are ethanol markers. And if you're below a certain concentration, you can get your licence back. If you're above a certain concentration, you don't get your licence back. So um, there are markers that can be measured in hair that provide that sort of licensing process um, where you can get your licence back. They have that in certain countries. We don't have that here. Does the coarseness of the hair make a difference at all? Yes. The incorporation of, of drugs into hair can be dependent upon the amount of melanin in hair. So the darker the hair, the more likely the higher high concentration. Grey hair, less likely for drugs to be incorporated in, in, in the hair. But uh, there's a lot that we don't know about hair too. Um, but we do know that drugs can be detected in hair and that's a useful tool for us. So one of the things that I've seen a number of young people in their 20s who've been out and reported after one drink or two, definitely not um, something that would normally make them incapacitated. And often the symptoms are vomiting that night, um, shaking, not quite remembering what happened. There's this almost like a fugue, just a bit missing from the night, which is really frightening. But their priority is to, they look after each other and usually only tell someone else a day or two later and by then they just want to see a doctor and make sure they're okay or a GP and make sure they're okay. And obviously if sexual assault is involved, that's a different story. But if they can't remember, then they don't necessarily want to go to the police. And if they live in that local area as well, there are so many implications for them. And I think it's probably underreported from my anecdotal evidence and, and what I'm hearing from children and family and extended family and um, their partners and friends. It's quite scary. And, and in fact, I can say to sort of people in their 20s, like so-and-so was at that bar. Go, oh, yeah, that's notorious for that. Oh, that gay bar, yeah, you're more likely to be hit with amyl nitrate, which is what, jungle juice. And it's just astonishing to me that there's this network of people who seem to know what they might have been drugged with but don't know how to avoid it in the first place. And there was a story in the Sydney Morning Herald recently about needle pricking. And I don't know if that's a valid thing or not because I'm trying to work out how you actually inject volume into a leg subcutaneously without somebody knowing. But in your experience, is that a real thing as well? Uh, not that I have a lot of experience with. I have heard of the practice of needle spiking or needle pricking, whatever, whatever the term is. I'm not sure that it's all that common, but I don't have a lot of experience with that. But I do know, and I concur with what you said, is that when someone does present a couple of days later, there's usually not much to find there. And if a doctor, for example, a GP will take a urine sample, send that to a hospital for analysis, well, there are limited screens that can occur in a hospital for drugs of interest. And it's usually restricted to the main sort of drugs like amphetamines, cocaine, opioids, benzodiazepines and cannabinoids. So they're the sort of key five drugs of abuse. But we know, and our experience and our investigations tell us that post-pandemic, there are a huge number of new synthetic drugs that we hadn't seen previously and are now sort of common, not only in hospitalised patients who attend emergency after an overdose, but also in our deceased population where these drugs are prevalent. And these are usually drugs that can sedate someone, cause them some harm, and are usually 
in combination with a whole range of other drugs. So when you've got other drugs on board in a particular person, they can potentiate or act synergistically or act together to potentiate some of these uh, adverse outcomes. So a victim who presents a couple of days later is going to be compromised in terms of any potential evidence that may be collected from that person to be used going forward. It's a really difficult issue. And from my experience, the number of drugs that can now be potentially introduced into a drink, into food, has increased significantly. And that's a challenge for us because often when someone takes a drug, the first thing the body wants to do is metabolize or eliminate that drug. And when the body does that, it changes the chemical, the original chemical that's ingested to other products. We don't always know what those other products are. We might have an idea about the metabolism of particular drugs, but if it's a new synthetic drug that we've never seen before, we're unlikely to know what the metabolites are. And there's usually multiple metabolites or multiple byproducts that are produced by the body. And so in urine, all you're left with is the elimination products that you've got to then try and find and deduce, hey, that was the original drug that was taken. One of the things that I've always been intrigued by too is people who overdose, often it's accidental when they're injecting drugs. And I remember seeing, um, speaking to forensic pathologists and how prisoners, when they're out of prison, have a highest risk of dying in the first few hours because, well, you may like to explain why, if they've been injecting drugs the moment they get outside of prison, why are they most vulnerable to overdosing then? So for most drugs, when they're taken regularly, people develop a tolerance. And this is particularly true of drugs such as opioids. And opioids are meaning heroin, morphine, oxycodone. As you take the drug regularly, your body develops a certain tolerance to the drug, which means that the next time you use the drug, you'll need a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. That's how palliation works, for example, increasing doses of morphine until, you know, um, until that person is essentially does die of an excessive amount of drug as part of the process. Now, when a heroin user uses a lot of heroin, that increases over time. Now, if you're in prison, no access to drugs or very little access to drugs, that's not to say that there are no drugs in prison, but your tolerance does go right down. And so you might use the same amount that you'd previously used, which becomes an excessive amount, which then leads to that person overdosing uh, you get a depression of the central nervous system and they die of what you said, cardiorespiratory arrest, essentially. Um, so that happens, but it's not always that simple. And it's complicated by the presence of other drugs. For example, very few heroin users actually die with heroin in their system. Less than 10% of heroin users actually die with just heroin. It's usually heroin plus a sedative plus an antidepressant plus both of those and a combination of other drugs, including potentially alcohol which then puts significant stress on, on the body in terms of trying to deal with the overload of drugs that can depress the central nervous system. So it's not usually just one drug. There are very few deaths, for example, where people die of methylamphetamine only. They die because they've got other drugs in their system or they put themselves at risk or in situations of risk. So, for example, driving a car very fast under the influence of methylamphetamine. That puts someone at risk and others at risk, of course. One of the things you're quite passionate about 
is drug testing at festivals. And it's always astonished me that there seems to be this social acceptance of any pill from, you know, $20 you hand over and you get a pill or, or more from a stranger. And I remember in general practice saying to people, look, if I delved into my drawer and said, look, I made this in my garage, but it's going to make you feel really good and it's going to cure all your symptoms, you want one? And they'd say, no, don't be ridiculous. That's disgusting. <laughs> so they wouldn't trust me. And I said, well, why are you trusting some guy who knows some guy who's got it for you? And there's some sort of disconnect with young people and music festivals that it's this is okay and it's safe. And I think the, there's a great controversy about whether or not pills should be tested at drug festivals. And as far as I'm aware, there have been accusations that testing leads to people multi-dosing themselves and that's more dangerous. So I'm really interested in your opinion and how you've come to your belief. So my view is pretty simple, is that any life is worth saving. And particularly young people who make mistakes, they will make stupid decisions and take a drug, for example, or take a pill that they think contains some ecstasy, think contains some uh, psychoactive substance that'll make them feel good without really thinking about some of the consequences. And, you know, when you when you buy an illicit drug, it's not like you get a certificate of analysis that demonstrates the purity of the drug. Uh, you don't get a product disclosure form with a, with a particular substance. Or the safety and health <laughs> standards of the lab. Yes, you yeah. don't get that. So what you get is um, you're taking a risk on the fact that you're buying something that you think might be a particular drug of interest. Now, pill testing... Uh, does have its limitations, but it's a good step in terms of identifying potentially toxic agents. And I'm not saying that illicit drugs are not toxic. Of course, they can be toxic. But if there are other products within that pill that are potentially harmful, and we know what some of those things are. So, for example, if, a, if an ecstasy pill contains something like paramethoxyamphetamine, which is otherwise known as PMA, that's quite toxic in, in its own right. Now, MDMA is consumed widely around the world. There are deaths due to MDMA. We know that. People do die of MDMA overdose, usually as a result of taking an excessive amount of drug or having other drugs in their system. So if if someone is already prescribed an antidepressant then takes one of these other stimulants, that's a, that's, a, that's a disaster in terms of some of the adverse outcomes that can occur. So pill testing, whilst it provides some information about what's in that pill. It doesn't provide all the information. It does provide the opportunity for someone to talk to a practitioner about the dangers of taking illicit drugs. Now, people will take their drugs irrespective of what's what's in the analysis or what that shows. But evidences um, or scientific evidence has shown that half the users will actually not take that drug if they know that there's something dangerous in there. And that's a good thing. Um, so pill testing at festivals is helpful. It does save lives. There are many, many documented examples of this happening overseas. Uh, there's a, some good work being done in Canberra. There's no pill testing in Victoria or in other states. It's only done in Canberra at the moment, and they've had some positive outcomes in terms of saving lives. So I'm I'm in the position of, yeah, absolutely saving a young person's life who might make a, a silly decision about taking a particular drug. They should, it shouldn't have to cost them their life just because we think or... Oh, pill testing promotes drug taking. Well, it doesn't really. Uh, there's no evidence for that. In fact, it, what it does do is gives that person who's going to take a drug the opportunity to talk to a practitioner about the dangers of taking drugs. And maybe that's the first time that they're actually going to see a practitioner about, you know, the, the dangers of taking some of these substances. And I think that's that's a good thing. <laughs> 
medical use of marijuana has become more frequent and driving and how long marijuana stays in a person's system. In terms of legal issues, have you been involved in any cases like that? So not particularly for medicinal cannabis, but I have been involved in cases where cannabis is potentially an issue in terms of someone's ability to properly control a motor vehicle on the road. Uh, Cannabis can impair and does impair, um, and that depends on when the drug was consumed and how long after that person chooses to drive. So drug testing on the roadside for stimulants and for cannabinoids, that's a process that's been in Victoria for almost 20 years now. So you can be tested for these drugs at the roadside. And they indicate recent use. They don't indicate necessarily impairment, but they indicate that someone has used the drug recently and therefore, by association, likely to be impaired. Now, for medicinal cannabis, it's an interesting issue because the psychoactive component of cannabis, which is the Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, we'll just call it THC, that's also medicinal cannabis. So not all formulations of medicinal cannabis have THC, but most of them do because it's the psychoactive properties that actually alleviate some of the symptoms associated with you know, the prescribing of, of medicinal cannabis. But as the Road Safety Act stands, it is uh, an offence to have THC in your system while tr- whilst driving. So that's an issue. So if you're prescribed medicinal cannabis, you potentially undergo a drug test at the roadside, you test positive, comes to us for confirmation at the Institute, we confirm there's THC there. Well, under the Road Safety Act, that's still an offence because you've got that THC in your system. Now, arguably, you might say, well, it's a prescribed medication. Why is that different to a benzodiazepine that's prescribed or an opioid that is prescribed? Currently, as the law stands, that is the case. However, in Canada, where they have sort of tried to grapple with this issue, they've essentially advised people, if you're taking medicinal cannabis, don't drive for seven to eight hours after you've taken your medicinal cannabis. And that's good advice because you're not likely to test positive at the roadside and you're not likely to be impaired. So I think that's an approach that we might want to consider going forward. Um, And if you still have cannabis in your system at that time, well, that's that's an issue for the law then to determine, you know, whether that person is a potential risk to others or themselves on the on the road. So in a criminal case where you're you're testifying, how much is pure science versus interpretive science? That's a good question. Most of the stuff that we produce is based on fact, on scientific evidence. So when I go to court and we I have to comment on a particular drug. I only report the factual stuff that is contained within that report. I try and interpret the concentrations to provide some context. So often the question, is that low, medium or high? Well, or is that therapeutic, um, toxic or lethal? Well, I, I try not to describe it in those terms because any any concentration of a particular drug may be lethal, for example. So if you've got some morphine in you, it could be lethal in, in, in terms of its concentration. You can't just look at a concentration and say, well, that's therapeutic, that's going to be lethal, or that's going to be toxic. It's pretty hard to do for most drugs. There's no absolutes. That's where the interpretation is. Yeah. So I try and provide some interpretive value in terms of the context of the case, um, what sort of medication they were taking, what their dose was. Um, and again, given those confounding variables that I spoke about earlier about post-mortem changes, that's where the interpretation is. But most of the stuff that we produce um, is based on good evidence around 
what we know about the drugs, what's in the literature, some of the research that we've done, because we've done a lot of research at the Institute around post-mortem issues for drug detection, drug redistribution, the interpretation of drugs post-mortem and also in, in, in drivers, for example. So we have a good scientific understanding about what the significance of these drugs are in the cases that we are involved in. In court, how do you get your evidence across effectively to a lay audience of jurors? and lawyers and a judge who's not versed in science and toxicology per se? So the first time I was very nervous and I remember it was in Geelong, my first court case, um, and I was, you know, where are you from and um, where's your degree from? And I said the University of Monash and it's actually Monash University, but I was so nervous. So in answer to your question, it takes experience and uh, also knowing that the jury doesn't know much about drugs at all. So you need to start from the basics and actually describe what the drug is, how it's prescribed, what the sort of normal concentrations are and what sort of the adverse effects of the drugs are. And these are usually provided in our toxicology report. So they provide we provide that as part of the report that we produce for the families, for the coroners, for police, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's, it's a real challenge to try and put that in lay speak for the jury. And I think some, some of that is complicated by forensic shows that you see on TV where they have a pretty simple answer to a complex drug problem. Nothing, no, nothing's ever that really, really that simple. Even single drug overdoses are complicated, potentially. Thank you so much, Dimitri, for joining us today and talking about toxicology. I think there are so many things to think about next time we're watching hearing crimes. I'm going to have a lot more respect for the toxicological component. Oh, that's nice to hear. (laughs) The challenges you face. So thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly.